0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Good evening, dear listeners. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you're listening to the Sunday Twilight Show with Maud. It is 5 p.m. on Sunday, the 11th of December, and you can join me using the chat function. We can discuss today's topic, which is education in America. Welcome! Good afternoon, or should I say good evening fellow educators and dear listeners. This is my 25th radio show as a hostess and I'm delighted to share this experience in your company. But first I have to introduce myself to any new listener. I am a French citizen of French and West African ancestry. I have lived in the United Kingdom since 2008 and I'm a professional educator. I work in a secondary state school in North London, where I teach both languages as well as humanities. I also have experience as a teacher in the charity sector. If you want to follow me, you can go on Twitter at profprofmfl at profprofmfl. All views are my own. So, today I would like to focus on one topic that is relevant to me as an educator and personally in my working life. The podcast and the discussion that will follow with our guest Ray will be on the topic of education in America, because our guest is an American citizen who happens to live and work in London. So, this topic education in america is mostly relevant to educators in the english-speaking world but also people who are interested in education worldwide and the curious and savvy so remember you can also use the chat function at ttradio.org if you want to share your thoughts on today's topic which is education in america but let's first travel back in time to the origins of education in America. Picture yourself in the early 16th or 17th century. You have a population of Native Americans. You have the star of people being brought to America from Europe. They are usually immigrants who are fleeing religious persecution, or people who just want to try their luck in a new place. And there's also um, a few African people who are being kidnapped from their own home countries and brought to America for work. So what happens to all these children? The children of Native Americans, the children of black Africans, and the children of European migrants? Well, the children did receive instruction. But let's not kid ourselves, it was mostly white male children who were educated and they were educated through a different set of arrangements there was church supported schools so there were church supported schools there were local schools organized by small towns or villages or groups of dedicated parents there was also tuition schools set up by travelling schoolmasters There were charity schools for poor children run by churches or benevolent societies that offered mostly a religious education. There were also boarding schools for children of the well-to-do. There was also something called a dame school, which was run by a woman in her own home, an equivalent of a local community boarding school. There was obviously private tutoring when a family could afford to hire a tutor would come home to homeschool their children. And there was also education in the form of work apprenticeships with some rudimentary instruction in numeracy and literacy and a little bit of arithmetic thrown in. So all in all, it was male white children who received an education in the 16th and 17th century in America. So this is a system which is by definition an unfair system, which is based on parental income. If you can afford to pay tuition fees, you can get this extra education for your children. So without a formal system for funding education, it always depended on how much money the parents could pay, how much money charitable contributions could be made out of, if there was property taxes or not, It might be paid in nature with fuel contributions, and in some cases, state support for the lucky ones. Now, at the time of the American Revolution, which started in 1777, some cities and towns in the northeast had free local schools paid by all the people who lived in the village. But this was not yet the norm. So when I mean northeastern cities, they were the, the earliest settlements. And some of them, let it be noted, had also free schools for African-American children. Now, the main motivation for setting up free school for all children is usually in an effort to educate young people so that they become citizens who are able to make their own decisions and able to vote. So, education is linked to democracy. In its conception. So soon after the American Revolution, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and other early leaders wanted to create a formal and unified system of publicly funded schools. So it already existed in very localized Northeastern communities as far back as the 1780s. But the concept of free public education for all children will not happen in the United States until the 1830s, so quite a few decades later. And there's a few reasons why. So first, as I mentioned earlier, education was for white male children. In the 1830s, there was a Massachusetts legislator called Horace Mann, M-A-N-N. And he was uh, really involved as a secretary of uh, the State Board of Education. And Horace Mann began to advocate for the creation of public schools. Public schools, meaning state-funded schools. He wanted them to be available to all children. He wanted the schools to be free and funded by the state, so by the community, by all of us. So Horace Mann and his friends started this movement of what they called common schools. And they really insisted on the fact that it had to be a public investment in education because it would benefit the whole nation. It would transform children into citizens who are product, productive citizens, but also literate and moral. So he had a view that education would bring morality and a civilization. So Horace Mann wanted to insist on the three R's as they're called. He wanted people to um, learn about reading writing and arithmetic so basic numeracy basic literacy and uh, a little bit of reading on top so along with other subjects sometimes like history geography grammar and rhetoric he also wanted a very strong dose of moral instruction uh, in order to instill these civic virtues that were essential to have a democracy that is functioning. So Horace Mann, in his common school, wanted children of the poor and middle classes to prepare to get good jobs and also to uh, improve the nation's economic growth. So that was the beginning of that universal vision of education. Now, Horace Mann belonged to a group of very liberal thinking reformers. And he saw um, private school as something negative, because he thought that the money devoted to private school would be um, advancing the rights and privileges of the ones who were already more advantaged. So he wanted a universal, free, and accessible system, so that it would reduce the the power and influence of the most affluent and well-educated families. And this was rejected by many Americans because a lot of men, a lot of mer- Americans to this day actually do not want to pay for other people's children. They have a vision that the community shouldn't pay for everybody, and that the efforts of paying the financial effort should be the burden of the parent as a choice rather than a shared burden. So there's this idea of commonality that is absent in still a lot of Americans to this day. So public, or should I say, state schools were more common in cities than in rural areas, and they were more common in the Northeast, where the first settlers arrived, than in other parts of the country. In 1830, so at the third, at the third uh, of uh, the Victorian age. Age or Victorian century, we have 55% of children aged 5 to 14 who are enrolled in state schools. And by 1870, so 40 years later, almost two generations later, we have 78%, so quite a big jump in numbers. Now, if we go another jump in time to 1910, just before the First World War, we have 14% of Americans aged 25 and older who have completed high school. So still, it's not universal at all, because 14% is very low. And in 1970, so 50 years ago, the high school completion rate was still only 55%, which means that 50 years ago, only 50% of Americans had uh, completed high school. How is it now well in 2017 90 percent of americans aged 25 and older have a high school degree so way more than in the 1830s but still not a hundred percent and you would assume that a high school degree should be the minimum for all in our world now i did mention the fact that the american school system was um mostly for white males at the beginning of its existence. So what happened to black African children? Well in the early years of the nation, um, if you were not white, you would be excluded from school. So these groups did again did gain access to public schooling, but often only on Sundays in religious schools or in separated schools with much less funding than the, the norm. So Almost all of the southern states that enacted laws um, in the segregated era prohibited teaching African-Americans to read. So it reached a stage where if you wanted to teach an African-American child to read, you would be prosecuted. So during the era of slavery in the United States, let's remember that um, Abraham Lincoln just banned slavery in 1865. So the education of enslaved African Americans was discouraged. It was seen as being detrimental to the segregation and the slavery state, so you would go against the law. Some people thought it was important to teach religious education, but it was still illegal in most of the southern states. So it was against the law to educate black children in 1831 there was a revolt by nat turner and it scared the white population so much that the prohibition from teaching black children was extended in some states even to free black children which means that the children in slavery would not get any education but free black children would also be banned from getting an education Now in some northern states where education was legal for black people they still had very little access to it. Education was seen as a way to emancipate so a lot of white populations were scared that black people by getting an education would question slavery. In as far back as 1780s a group called the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery, and the acronym is PAS, they took on anti-slavery tasks. And for them to help former slaves, they had to get an education. So they started giving money to former slaves, but also to give them um, lectures and lessons in order to be able to read. A lot of anti-slavery groups started. There was the New York Manumission Society, NYMS and these ones wanted to abolish slavery and they saw education as a mean for emancipation. So they established African free schools in 1787 which is when you think of it a long time ago just after the French Revolution and during its first two decades of existence the NYMS enrolled 100 to 200 black students and they were taught literacy and numeracy. The school also offered um, shelter to people who were fleeing from slavery and uh, support. They were taught reading, writing, grammar, math, and also geography. And geography was super important for freed uh, black Americans, but also for slaves who wanted to escape. Because if you didn't know how to follow the river to get to a free state, you were doomed to be caught again. So it just shows that there was two visions, education for black people was a way to emancipate them and fight against slavery, but they were also trying to prove that by receiving an education, African Americans could function and fully integrate. So it was twofold, the process and the goal achieved by teaching the black population. So founded in 1787, the African Free School gave education for black people in New York City, and it operated for 60 years. So there were many people who worked really hard. And remember, in some states, you were not allowed to teach black children. So if you did so, you put your lives and your legal freedom at risk. So I just want to quote some very important um, educators who put their lives at risk. To help black children in America. There was John Barry Mitchum. Mitchum spelt M-E-A-C-H-U-M. And he was a black pastor, so a man of church. And he created a floating freedom school in 1847 on the Mississippi River. So by having a floating freedom school, which was not operating in just one area he could circumvent the anti-literacy laws that operated in the States. Because he was not based anywhere, and I guess he used uh, boats, he was not able to be prosecuted. Later on, Margaret Crittenden Douglas, she was a white woman and she published a memoir after she was put in jail. She was literally imprisoned in Virginia, in 1853, because she was teaching black children how to read. I find that amazing. And Margaret Crittenden-Douglas is such a um, symbol for educators. She's someone who wanted to teach black children for their own sake. And she ended up in jail for it. I think we should have her statue in many schools all over the world. There's there was also Catherine and Jane Deveaux, Deveaux spelt D-E-V-E-A-U-X. And Catherine and Jane were black women, they were mother and daughter. And with the help of a Catholic nun called Matilda Beasley, they also ran underground schools in Savannah, Georgia, in the early to mid 1800s. So remember, these women were doing this for free, they were teaching black children at risk of being imprisoned and punished by the law and the legal system. So very brave women dedicating their lives for the education of Black children. There was also Mother Mary Lang, who uh, was a part of the Oblate Sisters of Providence. So she was a woman who happened to be uh, a, a religious woman. And she founded the Saint Francis Academy in 1828. And finally, Mother Henriette de Lille, who, with her Sisters of the Holy Family, founded schools in New Orleans, including St. Mary's Academy. So all these educators believed in education as a form of emancipation for black people, and they also put their lives on the line. So they really put their money where their mouths were. Now you're going to say, all right. So, Black African children were not allowed to attend schools in uh, the early America history. Uh, early American history. What about Native American children? So, it was a different situation for Native Americans. For Black children, um, American people believed that if they were educated, they would question slavery and rebel. So. For them, for the white population, particularly in the South, it was important to keep them ignorant and uninformed to control them. For Native American children, it was a different vision. They saw education as a way to transform Native Americans into American citizens. So education was used there as a tool to control. So it's an opposite situation. African children were not allowed to attend schools, whereas Native American children were forced to attend school. So how did they do this? Well, the state started funding boarding schools for Native American children as far as the 17th century. And the primary objective was civilizing natives. So in that process, the culture of Native American children was destroyed, so it was a genocide of their culture, and they were not allowed to speak their language, they were told um, to speak English, their religion was banned, and a Western vision of education was imposed. These boarding schools were established by Christian missionaries of all denominations. So here, church and state worked together to control native americans the the government funded the federal government gave money to missionaries to teach the native americans either where they lived on reservations or in boarding schools in other areas now the bureau of indian affairs b i a had money dedicated to these boarding schools and the aim again to educate native american children was to erase their ancestry, their heritage, their culture, and their language. You could just go as far as saying it was a whitewashing experiment. So how did it, how did they fare in the education system? Well, Native American children have the highest dropout rates of any ethnic group in the United States to this day. So recent statistics from the Bureau of Indian Affairs, and it's still active, which I find quite shocking. So they have noted that 29 to 36% of all Native American students drop out of school between seventh and 12th grades. So before they reached um, high school. Now, we talked about African children in America. We talked about Native, Native Americans but we forget one minority that is usually very much oppressed all over the world, and that is girls. So between 1790 and 1870, American girls in the US were not particularly educated and were not um, helped into uh, gaining skills in literacy, reading, and arithmetics. However, in all that time, they started, at the end of the 1870s, to slowly get access to education to finally outperform their male counterparts. So many schools were set, set up in the early 20th century, and they were open for girls. But the fear was that boys and girls should mix. So they had a, a gendered vision of education. Boys shouldn't be mixed with girls in their minds, so they tried to give them a different education. Boys had access to vocational classes, thinking about jobs and apprenticeships, while girls were taught about home economics and secretarial courses. They were having separate physical education And also, there were separate classes focusing on women's health, women's biology, and boys were encouraged to do more vigorous physical activity than the girls. (coughs) My apologies. Now, if you look at graphs, there's data from the National Center for Education Statistics in America. Um, At the beginning, we had just above 20% of women Who had access to education in the early 1870s? And then it slowly rose to nearly 40% a few decades down the line. So it's definitely a big increase and very quick. Now, if you look at the state of Massachusetts, we have first signs of schooling as far back as 1642. How did it happen where the people lived still in log huts? And yet they had built a separate place, a separate um, hut, where children would assemble and learn. So these local public schools or state schools were established as far back as the 1640s. Both sexes started to be admitted to these schools later on, two, two centuries later, in 1789. So girls could attend, but they couldn't attend as, as long as boys. In the state of Massachusetts, girls could attend school from April to October. And 76% of the teachers employed in these schools were women as early as 1858. So it means that very quickly, education became feminized. Teachers were women. And the enrollment of women in schools happened very, very quickly. So. Girls were slowly allowed to get gain an education. Their education was differentiated from that of boys in order to separate them. But now, what do we see? We see that in statistics and data, girls are doing better than boys, mostly, in the American system. Now, how does the American system operate? In England, we start school age four in September, And we start in reception, and then we attend year 1, year 2, all the way to year 13, where we have our last exam, which is A-levels. Now, in America, the children start secondary school at age 11 or 12, a little bit like in England, where we start year 7. But secondary school is called middle school in America. And the first grade in middle school is sixth grade. And then it goes up seventh eighth ninth and ninth grade you leave your middle school and you go to high school so remember 90 percent of adult americans in 2010 had a high school degree so it means that they went to high school in ninth grade and then they left high school age 17 or 18 having gained their 12th grade exam so not so dissimilar to the english system there is obviously a difference of names but middle school is secondary school and high school is basically a little bit of secondary school and sixth form college so the public school education in the united states is established by each state government and they are very free it's a decentralized system so it's very alien to our system in the uk and in france where the government and the department for education is at the top of the hierarchy and all schools usually follow the directives and the guidelines and the guidance. Now in the US, every state is free to operate and have its own department for education. So education is very different depending on the state where you live. The structural segments of education are generally from kindergarten, all the way to grade 12, as we said. So I would say around the age of four all the way to the age of 18. Now, before we dive a little bit more into how modern American school system operates, I think it's really important to insist on the fact that there is no centralized system. There is a national guidance and a reference structure, but in the end, every local state does its own thing. So it's really important to remember that when we think about the quality of education in America, it depends where you are. So it's a little bit as a postcode lottery. But before we dive a little bit more into the modern state school system in the US, let's listen to the news.
0: This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
2: TES Magazine reported on news that Education Secretary Gillian Keegan said that the proposed schools bill will not progress in this parliamentary session. The bill itself was originally launched in May this year and covered a range of areas including school attendance, safeguarding and new powers over multi-academy trusts. Ms Keegan spoke at the Commons Education Select Committee, confirming that the Schools Bill will not progress in the third session. She also said her department remained committed to the objectives and would be prioritising some aspects of the Bill. Of the aspects of the Bill Ms Keegan stated she wanted to focus on, she identified the need for a register to identify and account for children not in schools, as well as helping more faith schools join multi-academy trusts. One area not seen as a priority, however, was the creation of more grammar schools, with Ms Keegan stating her strong views that 93% of children will never get to go to one, and the belief that the academy structure remains the route to make the biggest difference to the most children the quickest. The Mirror Online carries a story about Labour MP, MP Zara Sultana's proposal to widen the free school meal scheme in primary schools across England. Under the plans all primary pupils would get access to free school meals. The current scheme for universal free school meals ends in year two. The article suggests that under the current plan around 800,000 children living in poverty miss out on free meals due to the strict eligibility criteria. Ms Sultana will bring forward a bill in the coming week. The MP for Coventry South said it was a major issue when families simply can't afford everyday groceries and that providing meals for school was another strain. She went on to point out that both Scottish and Welsh governments have plans to introduce universal free school meals, but accused the government in England of prioritising tax breaks for the wealthiest people. Warwickshire World Online news site reports on the arrival of delegates from around the world to a conference focusing on developing technical education. More than 50 visitors attended the event organised by the British Council at Warwick Trident College. The college is part of the WCG group. Guests arrived from a range of countries in Africa and Asia with delegations including government ministers and education officials. A spokesperson for the WCG said technical education is one of the key pillars of a successful developing economy and that the hope was that delegates would take away some insights which will have a positive impact on their country's developments in technical and vocational training. The latest Sunday Times Schools Guide has been released and many local news outlets are reporting on the successes of schools in their surrounding areas. Northern Ireland outlets report that the guide has raced seven secondary schools in the national top 50, calling this a significant achievement in light of the nation's comparatively small population. It was acknowledged that several of the Northern Ireland schools mentioned in the list have been described as highly selective grammar schools, with the DUP's Diane Dodds noting that whilst Northern Ireland is punching above its weight, there will always be areas where improvements can be made. She went on to point out that the list as a whole is dominated by expensive fee-paying schools. Finally, Keele University has launched the UK's first Law Undergraduate Degree designed to help tackle the climate crisis. The new course in Law with Environmental Sustainability is the first of its kind in the UK. It has been developed to create legal professionals with a good knowledge of environmental obligations on governments and communities. Professor Alison Brammer, head of the School of Law at Kiel, said, The climate crisis affects everyone and we need legal professionals who understand the issues we face. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Jo Fox.
1: So, as I was saying before I got interrupted, we have access online to the Common Core State Standards, which have been published in 2010. You can easily access it on the CCSSO website. They describe the normal nomenclature for all the learning in English, language, and the arts, as well as mathematical standards for the U.S. Now, how do you get about choosing a school in the U.S. system? Well, it's a little bit similar to what we do in the U.K. system. First, you have the most common and most telling data about a school, which is the core curriculum summary whether the school meets the national and state content standards. You also have the student and teacher ratio and the number of teacher's aids per classroom. You also can look at the national test score averages whether the school culture and the teaching philosophy fits your vision of schooling and then you can look at what subjects are offered is it just a core subjects or do you also have the foreign languages do you have arts media and are the teachers able to offer differentiated learning and what sort of credentials did the teachers have so this is all the things you can look at all the data you can access when you want to look at an American state school. Now, what about private versus state schools in America? Public and private schools by numbers. We have more than 30,000 public school districts and more than 30,000 individual private schools in in the United States, which is a lot of choices. There are 50.7 million students attending state schools as data um, recorded in 2018. The private school enrollment has been falling since 2017, and it has now 5.7 million students, which is quite a lower number. In 1999, for instance, we had 6 million. The average tuition for private schools is about $13,000 a year, according to educationdata.org. The tuition can vary substantially depending on where you are. If you're in the middle of Wisconsin or if in the United States, it's going to be different. Now, in Connecticut, for example, the average annual cost of tuition is $23,000, which is almost double the national average. Whereas in Wisconsin, it's $4,000 a year. So it can be one third of the national average. The difference really is about local specialties. Costs can also vary based on the type of private school. For example, schools operated by organizations like the Roman Catholic Church or other religious groups tend to cost less than secular independent schools. The national average for high school tuition is officially $16,000 with why the average Catholic high school is $11,000. So this might encourage some people to choose um Catholic school, even though they are not Catholic themselves, because it's about six grand difference, five to six grand difference. So this is approximately the cost of an American school. They can go much higher on the other hand. Now, if we look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is called the nation's report card. We have um, private school students in subjects such as maths, reading, science and writing, and they do as as well or even better than state-educated students. So private school students as a whole, score better in almost all subjects, which is not surprising. I think we see the same same situation in the UK. On college entry tests, such as the SATs in the UK, we have um, students in private schools consistently outperforming their public school peers in all subject areas. So again, it doesn't surprise you. It's the same in the UK. When you have a public school child and a, and a privately educated child, the one who is privately educated, succeeds better at the exams. But if you look at the research, and there's been research published by Pianta in 2018, the eig mind, academic, social, psychological, and attainment outcomes. And he noticed that it's not so much the private school effect that is important in a child's Learning, it's actually the family attributes. So if you have college educated parents, if their high if their income is high, it matters more than the school you attend. And I'm quoting Pianta when you compare children who went to private school for an average of six years with those who only went to public school, any apparent benefits of private schooling, such as higher test scores, for example, are entirely attributable to parents' education and income. The fact that they went to private school does not account for any differences we might see. So definitely, private schools, yes, they do help you get better scores, but what matters is if you have parents who are educated and involved in your education. Christopher Lubinsky, a professor at Indiana University and the co author of the book The Public School Advantage Why Public Schools Outperform Private Schools, he says whether it's a public or a private school is not necessarily the defining factor. Private schools tend to score better on tests because the children are actually hot-housed and primed to do well at tests. But we found that family background differences explain more. Than the difference between public and private school test scores. So that's what the research says about the difference between state and private schools in the UK. I'm still looking at if my guest is joining us because I had to restart the chat. I don't know if my guest has found the new link I sent her by email. So we're gonna get give my guest a few minutes, and hopefully she will be able to join us. Now my gaze went to teacher training and skills in the American school system. So many private school teachers are not always certified certified as public school teachers are required to be. And I find that this is pretty much the same in the UK you don't always have to have a PGCE which is the teaching qualification to end up working in a private school because the fact is private schools want to hire subject um, subject experts so they don't always have a teaching degree they might have a degree in their subject or a different degree or a different set of skills. But this is not always what private schools look for. What they want is excellence in the teacher they're hiring, and it doesn't have to go through the teaching qualification. Independent schools usually have extensive professional development for individual teachers, and some of them Some groups of teachers make sure their skills in the classroom are good, even though they don't have the accreditation from a university. So, you will find that in state schools in America, most of the teachers have their teaching degree qualification, whereas they don't in private school teachers. Now, there's a new type of school that we haven't talked about yet, and it's the charter schools in the US. So what is a charter school? Well, it's not a public school and it's not a private school. A charter school is a school that gets state money, either the state one or the federal government money, but it operates independently from the regulations and the mandates of local school system. They do receive funding, but they are freer in the way they teach and the way they operate parents can choose for their child to attend a charter school and it doesn't have to follow the um, school zoning or those district zoning so you can choose a school that's quite far from your hometown or your house the school is established based on a charter or a contract and it gives it a lot more independence their degree of accountability varies but their standard practices and goals and methods of assessment is their own. They can devise their own assessment methodology. So by the very nature of this agreement, a charter school usually pro- provide quite a high quality of education, and they tend to go for innovative programs and uh, out-of-the-box study opportunities. I'm thinking that if you want to find an equivalent to a charter school in the US, In the UK, you might think that a free school is the equivalent of a charter school. As I said, tuition fees for private school in the US may vary from £5,000 in the cheapest areas to, all the way up to uh, $30,000, my apologies, from $5,000 to thirty thousand dollars and it depends on the location and it depends if it's a school that's a catholic school or a different uh, religion or denomination all right i can see ray i'm just going to try and invite her again all right ray has been teaching in the uk for quite a few years now and she is an american citizen so i'm hoping we can get her experience and her insight on the matter Hmm. i think technology is not on my side today right i'm gonna try and speak to ray and i will publish our interview together next sunday i think this is the only way we can get something that works structurally better. So I'm hoping you enjoyed this show, despite the technological issues, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you next Sunday. Thank you, dear listeners.
0: You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.